Hi, and welcome to the Part 3 with me podcast. The show that helps Part 3 students jumpstart into their careers as qualified architects and also to provide refresher episodes for practicing architects. I am your host, Maria Scudari. And this week, we will be talking about land law and revisiting easements and covenants. So today's episode meets PC3 of the Part 3 criteria. So I covered the subject of easements and covenants in episode 3, which was quite a quick and short uh, episode. I have since found more information on this subject that I wanted to share with you, uh, just to help you better understand their differences, where they apply, and how to deal with them if present on a site. So starting with land law, This type of law is concerned with rights, duties and obligations in relation to land and affects the practice of an architect because of the impact it has on spaces, rights uh, and obligations in, around, over and below buildings. So for example, if there's a crane overselling uh, a site that it's not related to, this can be considered that the crane is trespassing within the airspace of the neighbouring site, although the right to airspace extends only to heights for the ordinary use and enjoyment of the land and structures upon it. So interests in land are classified as real property and there is a subclassification of real property into uh, corporeal and incorporeal hereditaments as they are known. So corporeal hereditaments are physical matter over the land, such as buildings, minerals, trees, and other items that are fixed to the land. Whereas incorporeal hereditaments are uh, rights, not physical items, such as easements. So land can also have proprietary rights, which have an impact on the use and enjoyment of the land, such as freehold and leasehold uh, interests, and mortgages and charges held over the land. In terms of registration of the land, in England and Wales, uh, title to the land is either registered or unregistered. Majority of today's land is registered at the HM Land Registry by being recorded on the register. Uh, as I am sure you are all aware, the HM Land Registry is a government department that is responsible for the administration of the land registration system in England and Wales. And their main function is to keep a registered title to land in England and Wales and to record dealings and registered land on behalf of the Crown. So there are a number of classes of title of land. An applicant is entitled to register land to one of seven classes of title by the land registry. Both freehold and leasehold estates may be registered with either an absolute title, a possessory title, a qualified title, And in the case of leasehold estates, they can be registered with a leasehold title. Under the absolute title, a person may register the land under such a title if they have a good holding or marketable title. Under a qualified title, it has the same effect as registration with absolute freehold title, except that the title is subject to some defect or right that is specified in the register. And under the leasehold title, it again has the same effect as the absolute title, 
except that it doesn't affect the enforcement of any state's right or interest that is adverse to or in derogation of the title of the lesser landlord to grant the lease. Then, upon registration, any rights to the land, such as easements and restrictive covenants, will need to be entered on the register as registered protected interests, binding the purchaser to them. Now, there are what's known as personal rights, which can be imposed on the right to use the land of another person, through the granting of a license, which entitles one person to use someone else's land with that person's permission. Such rights can be when a contractor, for example, is in possession of a construction site, or a more simple example is going to a neighbor's land to play cricket. So there are three types of licenses, bare, contractual, and a license coupled with an interest. A bare license is a gratuitous permission, giving someone permission to enter a house, for example. So such a license may be implied or expressly given and can be revoked at any time. A contractual license is a license for consideration and is made under the terms of a contract, limiting the license's right to cancel. For example, a ticket holder at a football match and the license can be revoked depending on the terms of the contract. And then under a license coupled with an interest is a license to enter the land coupled with the grant of a recognisable interest in property, such as a person entering the site to cut down a tree and take it away. So such license can't be revoked and is uh, assignable. So apart from freehold and leasehold registration, there is also the option of co-ownership, where a person is entitled to hold and enjoy the same land concurrently with two or more people for the same interest at the same time. And this can be done under either joint tenancy or tenancy in common. If there is co-ownership of land, the legal estate will be held on a trust of land governed by the Trusts of Land and Appointment of Trustees Act 1996. So if the land is registered, it will be registered in the names of the trustees of the land as the registered proprietors of the legal estate for and on behalf of the beneficiaries of the trust. And under joint tenancy, there must be four unities present between the co-owners, which include the unities of possession, whereby all co-owners are equally entitled to possession of the whole land, and they are also entitled to interest, title and time. Now, the key element of joint tenancy is that if one of the joint tenants passes away, their interest in the land passes automatically to their surviving joint tenants, whereas under tenancy in common, the tenants hold the land in undivided shares and there is no right of survivorship and only the unity of possession is necessary for a tenancy in common. So that's roughly, in a ballpark, an overview of land law. Now let's look at easements. So an easement is a right that one landowner has over the land of another and it must burden one parcel of land known as the servient land for the benefit of another parcel of land known as the dominant land. If the same person however owns and occupies both lands then the easement can't exist 
but in the case where the same person owns both parcels of land, but one of them is occupied by a tenant, then the easement can be granted by the owner to the tenant. So there are a number of easement types, such as right of way, right of light, right of support, utility easements and miscellaneous easements. Starting with the right of way, this easement is a legal interest giving the right for one person to use or pass over land owned by another for a defined purpose and the extent of the easement depends on the manner of its acquisition. A right of way can be for all purposes, such as for vehicles or pedestrians at all times, or it can be limited to a particular user or it can be limited to a particular type of use, such as for loading or unloading vehicles. If another party obstructs a right-of-way, then the other party has grounds for an injunction. Now, looking at the right of support, this right can exist where the owner of the dominant land has the right to have buildings on their land supported by those on the servient land, for example, where one building relies on another for support, such as uh, semi-detached or terraced houses. Then we have the right of light, which is an easement whereby a building has the right to receive sufficient natural light through defined apertures, allowing a building to be used for its ordinary purpose, such as through uh, glazed doors, windows or roof lights. So where such a right exists, English law states that the building owner is entitled to sufficient light according to the ordinary notions of mankind. Therefore, before starting work on a development, it should be determined that no neighbouring buildings have acquired a right to light that may be obstructed and the development proposal doesn't leave the neighbouring building with inadequate light. So to establish that such an easement um, exists, there must be an actual enjoyment of the right without interruption for 20 years and it can be acquired under the Prescription Act 1832. Now under the utility easements, these include, for example, a stormwater easement to carry rainwater to a river, a pond or watercourse, a sanitary sewer uh, to carry used water to a sewage uh, treatment plant, uh, also, another can be considered is the electrical power line easement or a telephone line easement or a fuel gas pipe easement. And lastly is the miscellaneous easements, which can include to fix a signboard above a neighbouring house, to use a wall to support a creeper plant, or to park a car provided that is pertinent to a dominant land and the right is not so excessive so as to exclude the Serbian owner without any use of the parking area, to use a letterbox, to use um, a toilet in common between a lesser and lessee and others, to use the land of another to store goods or to keep uh, chicken coops, for example, on a common land. Now, an easement can be either positive or negative, meaning a positive easement, for example, allows the landowner to go onto or make use of some installation on their neighbour's land, 
This can be done if the landowner has a right of way, providing them access to the neighbouring land, whereas a negative easement is to receive something from uh, the land owned by another without obstruction or interference. So essentially it would be the one burdened by the right of access mentioned in the previous example. So an assessment therefore permanently binds the land uh, over which it is exercisable and a person takes on this easement when they become the owner of the land to which the easement is associated with. So the easement passes with the land on transfer to the new owner. So the easement relates to the land specifically and not the owner. So how can you identify an easement? Uh, so for an easement to exist, it must possess four separate characteristics or elements, and all four must be present if a right is to be an easement. So firstly, there must be a dominant land and a servient land, meaning the easement is in principle linked with two parcels of land, with its benefit being attached to the dominant land and the burden asserted against the servient land. Secondly, the easement must accommodate the dominant land, meaning it must be reasonably necessary for the better enjoyment of the dominant land. Thirdly, the dominant land and servient land must be owned or occupied by different people. And the fourth uh, characteristic is that the easement must be capable of forming the subject matter of a grant, meaning its operation must be certain and precise and can't be vague or indeterminate. Easements, however, can also be brought to an end by statute, by the exercise of statutory powers, such as compulsory purchase of land, or by express release, or by implied release, or where the dominant and servient estates come into the same ownership uh, and possession, or on termination of the estate to which the easement is attached to. So that covers uh, easements. Now let's look at restrictive covenants. So restrictive covenants are agreements entered into by owners of land that limit the use of land or activities upon it. So restrictive covenants are essentially negative as they place restrictions on the development or use of the land uh, that are binding for successive owners for the benefit of another land, and they are enforceable by one landowner as a burden against another. So a restrictive covenant can restrict or prevent the use of land for a particular purpose, and such agreements may override any planning permission obtained and will need to be discharged or modified before the permission can be implemented. So permission to build is meaningless if a neighbour has a covenant against building that they refuse to release. Some common examples include restricting residential development or restricting the erection of any other building or structure on the land or restricting the use of the land for any business activity. So if such restrictions are imposed uh, to a land, these will appear on the land registry register or at the land charges registry in the case of unregistered land. So a restrictive covenant has to be registered to be enforceable, so the person benefiting from it must register it at the land registry 
or the land charges registry and for a covenant to be enforceable against uh, subsequent owners of burdened land, it must be restrictive, it must touch and concern the land, and the land benefiting from the covenant must be identifiable. A key feature of restrictive covenants is that they not only bind the original parties, but also their successors in title, which varies to easements which relate only to the land and that it's transferred um, to a new owner with the land. So when a landowner has the burden of a restrictive covenant, there are a number of issues to consider before a decision can be made as to whether the covenant affects the land. So they must consider the extent of the land affected by the covenant, identify uh, the person who has the benefit of the covenant, whether the covenant has been properly protected by registration under the Land Registration Act 2002 or the Land Charges Act 1975, whether the benefit of the covenant has passed to subsequent owners and what the true construction of the covenant is. So advice must therefore be sought in relation to both local authority planning and the effect of any relevant restrictive covenants. So by undertaking development works and ignoring restrictive uh, covenants, even in accordance with planning permission, can result in the other person being able to instigate proceedings in the courts and being entitled to force that restriction. Now, a covenant can be modified or discharged Uh, but the upper tribunal only has um, such powers where the original purpose of the covenant has become inappropriate over time. So that's when they would either modify it or discharge it. So an application can be made on one or more grounds, including if um, there are changes in the character of the property or of the area since the covenant was imposed, Uh, rendering the covenant obsolete or if the covenant impedes the reasonable use of the property or there is modification uh, that has been agreed by those with the benefit of it and that it will not injure the persons with the benefit of the covenant. So that covers what I wanted to discuss today in terms of land law Uh, and revisiting easements and covenants and hopefully this has given you a better understanding of what they are and how they can be addressed. So to sum up what I discussed today, land law is concerned with rights, duties and obligations in relation to land and affects the practice of an architect because of the impact on spaces, rights and obligations in, around, over and below buildings. In terms of registration in England and Wales, title to the land is either registered or unregistered. There are a number of classes of title of land an applicant is entitled to register land with, which is either an absolute title, a possessory title, a qualified title, or in the case of leasehold estates, they can be registered with a leasehold title. Apart from freehold and leasehold registration, there is also the option of co-ownership. 
Then looking at easements, they are the right that one landowner has over the land of another, and it must burden one parcel of land known as the servient land for the benefit of another parcel of land known as the dominant land. Some easement types include rights of way, rights of light, rights of support, utility easements and miscellaneous easements. An easement can be either positive or negative and can be brought to an end by statute. Then we have restrictive covenants, which are agreements entered into by owners of land that limit the use of land or activities upon it. So they are essentially negative. Uh, restrictive covenants are only binding uh, to the original parties but also successes in title, which varies to easements which relate only to the land. And the covenant can only be modified or discharged uh, by the upper tribunal. Now, to conclude, in terms of a scenario, you may be given a building scenario with some background information uh, about the specific building, which may include either an easement or a covenant, and you might be requested to identify potential issues concerning either the easement or the covenant. So, for example, you may be given a building which is affected by rights of light from a neighbouring property. So, in such an instance, you would recommend that a daylight and sunlight assessment is undertaken, which demonstrates that the proposal you're putting forward will not affect the neighbouring property, which the easement relates to, and you should then issue it as part of the planning submission to avoid any delays that the local authority may impose. And you can also determine whether the covenant has, uh, if it's a covenant, if it has uh, outgrown its original purpose, as um, I already mentioned, uh, and whether it should be modified or discharged in that case, you would then recommend it to the upper tribunal for review. So that covers what I wanted to discuss today. Uh, and that concludes today's episode. If you would like to get in contact with me, please feel free to email me on the address provided in the show notes. Thank you for listening. This is an educational show aimed at supporting the future generation of architects. The information, opinions and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at your own risk. Please join me next week for some more part three with me time.